Welcome to Interruptions Podcast. We talk to individuals who have dealt with trauma and interruptions in their personal and professional lives and their journey towards being resilient. Kathy and I are very passionate about our faith, social justice, and the effects on our lives. Every episode, we will talk about actionable advice that you can apply today to reinvent yourself and find the courage to have faith in the midst of your interruptions. We are your hosts. My name is the Reverend Odell Montgomery Cooper. And I am Kathy Patton. Odell, I feel like it's been so long since I've seen you, and it hasn't been that long at all, right? No, it hasn't. (laughs) (laughs) So today we have Alice Forrester. She is actually the CEO of Clifford Beers. So welcome, Alice. Hey. Welcome hey, Alice. to the Interruptions Podcast. It's such a pleasure to meet you. I've done work with the Clifford Beers uh, Clinic before, but never had an opportunity to meet you. So I'm really excited about you having you on the podcast. Thank you for coming. Uh, thank you, Kathy. Thank you so much. And I'm honored to be here. Oh, and- it's good to see you again. So, 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 Alice, our title of this podcast was, was perfect for you. Um, and it's, does trauma have color or status? Mm. And so we wanted to be able to, to talk about that today. But before we delve in, um, Alice, this is your stage where I just give you all the love and thanks. Um, and to publicly let you know that interruption had over 1,000 views um, for the week. Kevin still has it posted on our YouTube page and people are still seeing it. The comments are coming in. Um, The invitations are coming in for me to speak and to be places. So um, I want to personally thank you. So Kathy, what you don't know is Alice and I serve on a board together, CTVIP. And something inside of me said, just talk to Alice about what you're doing. And she gave me great advice. She said, how can I help you? She gave me advice on creating the budget. She introduced me to Sharice, who is in the theater and who met with me, showed me what to do, how to, because, you know, I didn't know anything about the theater world and still don't. But um, and they were very helpful in helping me with this budget and coaching me about grant processes. And then we were moving along and everything was fine. And then COVID happens and funding dries up. The stage disappears. I call Alice in a panic. (laughs) And I can tell you that if it wasn't for, you know, David Adams, who was on two weeks ago and you having your two names on any grant um, people listened to me and took me serious because this is not the space that they knew me from. So I was a newbie in this space. And I had people say, what? Alice Forrester is supporting you? <laughs> David Adams, they already pre-funded you? I said, yes. They said, okay, they're doing good. You says, okay, we're going to fund you. <laughs> so I just need you to know. They said, and Alice is going to be in the community conversation. I said, yes, she'll be in the community conversation. And I was sitting in Alice's kitchen and we were working on something and I got an email and she said, tell them I'm working with you. And I typed <laughs> it in and I can tell you, Alice, and then you're helping me with the workbook and phase two of this. All I can say is you are one bad mamma jamma, Alice. (laughs) You know, Alice, before you respond to Odell, I'm seeing a pattern here with Odell because when David Adams was on, she talked about going over there to eat. And then now when she's introducing you, she's talking about being in your kitchen. So I'm seeing a little pattern here that Odell seems to be in someone's kitchen (laughs) all the time. (laughs) It's her kitchen cabinet. <laughs> well, Odell and I happen also to be neighbors, which I think has um, really added to my life um, because I don't have much of a life having three adopted kids and a full-time job. And so um, to have Odell say, well, I'm going to walk on over and talk to you is like such a refreshing, wonderful thing that I've never mm-hmm. really had in my life. So I'm personally um, very grateful for her friendship and 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 care 
uh, we had a, a friend had uh, lost her son and I asked Reverend to come over and she did the prayer for the, um, uh, the group. And it was just beautiful, uh, you know, really made this mom's um, experience. And I think your loss of your child, you know, was written into what she was experiencing. And so uh, she talks about it all the time. So um, oh, it's a back and That's forth, nice. right? It's yes, it is. Yeah. Well, what was and, compelling about her story to you, Alice? Um, well, you know, it's, it's funny because I didn't know Odell's story. So let me talk about what was compelling about Odell. Um, Odell uh, is the board chair of this VIP, Connected VIP. And I had never met a board chair more organized and more <laughs> in charge than ever. Um, I was so impressed by her and intimidated and made sure I was on time. And, um, you know, she had us, she has us like under control here. Um, and so, um, I, I, uh, was very admiring of her and, you know, both from a professional point of view. And then, um, uh, you know, it was until about five or six months that I knew some of Odell's story. She shared some of her story and, um, Aside from, you know, my incredible um, feelings of, of uh, sorrow for her experience, um, the story is, is one filled with, yes, interruptions, but also with this incredible grace, you know, um, the work and the people that she draws to her because of the kind of person she is, I think, um, you know, it's, 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 an, it's an amazing thing to watch. You know, mm -hmm. Odell says, yeah, I don't know anything about theater. That doesn't matter. She knows everything <laughs> about people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, um, you know, she's very good at asking yeah. for what she needs. Um, and she's incredible at doing, <laughs> you know, like, I've never mm -hmm. met anyone where you're like, oh, I think you should, you know, uh, you know, send out a social media post or whatever. And she's like, okay. And she gets on the cell and she's like, she's already got two people and they're going it out. You know, it's like, okay, that's done. You know, and so um, it's been, it, it, you know, it's been an honor to work with you. And theater is my secret love. Um, I did theater before I became in the mental health field. I worked in a women's performance space in New York for about 10 years and did tons of theater. It was community theater, but it was, uh, you know, New York City. So it was kind of a, um, edgy performance art. And I miss it every day. <laughs> oh. Mm -hmm. oh, Alice, I, I just I just try to do the best I can because I, I never want to disappoint all the professionals sitting around the table, you know, you all are currently working and still in your fields and I'm, I'm not. So it's like, I need to be on my game. So I, I try hard. I'm like, I don't want to disappoint you. <laughs> well, so. I think um, you have an internal critic much stronger than any of us. And um, I don't know, Kathy, if you would agree with me, but uh, you're, um, mm -hmm you know, you have a high level of excellence um, matched by this incredible sense of community and building community. I don't mm -hmm. know if it's because your sorority days or, um, you know, uh, 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 your work in the church, but it, it, it's, it's a great combination. Mm -hmm. So well, I I'm, agree. I'm, I'm blessed to have you as a friend and a neighbor and yeah. colleague. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. That's great. That's great. She, oh, Odell is like that. She's very organized. Um, I made the mistake of asking her to teach a Bible class and I thought it would be interesting because uh, she knows her, she knows her Bible and then she takes it extremely serious and we were getting homework and assignments and I'm like, but I just wanted to learn about the Bible. I didn't know I was going to get homework and have assignments too. And so and she will like send you a text and make sure you read this and make it. I'm like, oh my goodness, great. So needless to say, I'm not going to ask her to do that anymore. And she hasn't. Well, 
I think that uh, that that perseverance and uh, you know the word resilience is used way too much. I think in the in, in the field, but I think that that um, determination, perseverance, grit, um, big brain. I don't know. You know, it mm-hmm. just is just makes things happen, and and uh, it's pretty impressive. Well, Alice. Alice- I'm go sorry. Ahead, go ahead. Ahead. No, no, nope. go ahead. That's okay. That's your line. You, you're, you're <laughs> um, Alice, you mentioned that you were in the theater. And so I love to hear about that type of information because um, what, of course, many, many people know of Clifford Beers in the community. And so what I'd like to know from you is if, because I'm a Google fiend, I will Google oh. anything. I'll Google <laughs> recipes. I, I'm, go- I'm Google all the time. What I'd like to know is that what would I not find on Google if I put your name in or Clifford Beers' name in? <laughs> what would you not find in? What would I not um, find? Well, if you just put my name in uh you may find me attached to the wow theater uh women Mm. one world theater um and uh we actually just had our 30th anniversary a few years ago and it was a uh, we called it a collective anarchy that we started in in as i said in new york city and it's still running and um they do probably well, I don't know now, they're not probably not doing any live performance, but they probably did six to eight performances a year. Um, and it was a collective. So I got time on the st- in the stage, which is worth so much money in New York, right? To have that much time. Yeah. And um, if I worked on your show. So it was, you know, this idea of women supporting women to be able to produce their work. And uh, you couldn't like just act in my show. You had to like take the set down or all the really unfun things and all of the that. above right, right. <laughs> um and i'm very proud of that work and it certainly informed who i am today and as an adult um you know i grew up in um in new jersey a very um lower middle class family. My dad and mom didn't go to college. My dad fixed typewriters. My mom was a secretary. She stayed home. She, we had, I was one of five. And, um, you know, they were not, I, you know, this was back in the day when there was a career outside of college and they really mm. didn't want me to go to college. Um, and I was so interested in arts and theater and they, I, they, we had never, ever gone to the theater as a family ever in our lives, you know, and they were like, who is this person, you know, <laughs> and I was insistent that I was going to go to college. So, um, you know, I filled out all the financial aid forms and they'd stand there in the morning and say, go get a real job. You know, they just, you know, they, they wanted a real job was being an assistant or a secretary or, um, you know, my mom said, well, maybe you could make a good airline stewardess. Wow. Because uh, you like to travel. And, um, <laughs> you know, and I, you know, so that, that I could have done all of those things. Um, mm-hmm. but it was just this passion inside of me that just wanted something else. And so um, I found myself, you know, through a couple of different pathways in New York doing this theater. Um, and it was the first time I, th- I lived at home when I went to college. So it was my first time being independent you know, five bucks in your pocket and that's it, <laughs> you know, kind of wow. thing. And, uh, and that was a lot, right? <laughs> yeah, it was a lot, right? And, and, mm-hmm. and I had a friend who had five, we had dinner, you know. <laughs> like, we, right. We, we <laughs> so, and, so uh, yeah. amazing. So Alice, how do you go from theater in New York to PhD and running a mental health clinic in New Haven? Yeah, so... um you know, a lot of blessings and a lot of uh, serendipity and things that have happened, right? I was up for a big director uh, through the um, uh, the Dramatist Guild would pick 12 up and coming directors in New York um, or from ac- across the country. And they would send them out to community theaters across the country to almost apprentice with directors. Mm-hmm. Uh, famous, you know, uh, artistic directors. And um, I 
auditioned. I put my paperwork in and I, I got chosen. And okay. it was like unbelievable because A, I never went to college. I, did, I took one theater course my whole life and whatever. Um, and I was really excited because I was going to get placed somewhere in the country, maybe Milwaukee, I don't know, and go do this theater. And, um, and they ran out of money and they didn't have enough. And so I got cut right in August, right? I was supposed to in September. I was waiting for my letter where I was going to go and I didn't get it. And I was literally, I, everybody always says that, but I was standing there with the letter, like horrified um, Mm -hmm. that I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. You know, I was like packed and ready to go. And this woman came over and she said, what's wrong? And she was the mom of one of my kids in this, I was working in summer camp. And she said, I said, oh, you know, I was supposed to do this and I don't know what I want to do with my life. I was in therapy. I like therapy. I like theater. I don't know. And she goes, well, I work at NYU and they have this program called drama therapy. Why don't you come over and you could work it for me and, you know, go to this program. And it turned out that the director of the program was on sabbatical. So she just signed me up. She had turned out to be <laughs> vice president of NYU. She signed me up. <laughs> I got a full scholarship. I got a job, you know, more money than I had ever made, you know, working there. And I be, and I joined the drama therapy program. The guy came back in the middle of this, you know, in January and he said, who are you? You know, you're supposed <laughs> to audition to get in. And I'm like, well, I'm a drama therapist and I'm here. And so um, I, I started the field of drama therapy, which is a very small field in our country. There are a lot of creative arts therapists, art, music. Um, but I had this incredible opportunity of meeting um, Dr. David Johnson, who at that time was the head of the National Trauma uh, Center at the West Haven VA. And I did my internship with the VA and um, I, there was no turning back after that. Mm. Um, you know, I worked with Vietnam veterans 20, 30 years out of Vietnam and they had a program where these guys lived together in a cohort and uh, drama therapy, art therapy was all part of the work. And I learned so much about people, about the country, about trauma and about the social impact of trauma on people. Um, you know, here were these guys who were living um, very broken lives, most of them, you know, they were divorced Mm. they didn't interact with their kids they when they came back from vietnam they had to like go into the bathroom and change out of their uniform because Mm. of the protesters okay and um they had to live with both having you know witnessed so many horrific things and their friends who died but they also um perpetrated you know bad things and had nowhere to talk about any of these things Wow. So the work that we did in the six month, eight month cohort was to bring out the story and help um, these folks, both men and women, um, tell Mm. their story and um, listen to story, which was hard to listen to trauma wise. Um, But it was a life changing experience for me. And I'm so glad I didn't get that internship. Who, Who wants to do real theater? (laughs) is drama theater something that you're still involved in do you still integrate that process in what you're doing um well <laughs> uh well i'm the i'm a, a full-time administrator and and so um if you want to call it drama yeah you can like <laughs> grant writing as you know you experienced it you know through this process um I went back to get my PhD. I was a drama therapist. I worked at St. Raphael's. I ran about 18 to 20 hours a group there on their inpatient unit. Mm. Great experience. I did that for a couple of years. Then I went up to Danbury Hospital and worked there. And then I decided that um, I I thought that I could run the place. <laughs> Which was, you know, be careful what you wish for, my friend used to always say. And I... Um, I said, I need my PhD. So I decided to go back and get my PhD in psychology. And I had to leave in psychology. They kind of kick everything out of you. You have to be a psychologist, you know. Um, And it took seven years and a lot of work. And I did the PhD and then um, 
had to get a job as an administrator to pay my student loans. And so there we go. <laughs> so okay. yeah. Yeah. I did do a lot of drama therapy. I trained um, in New Haven drama therapy and I did a lot. Um, and I, I, I sneak in a few uh, folks every once in a while um, to be able to do that. But mostly I'm working in home and there's a lot of drama there. <laughs> so Alice this is a side a, a part of your story that I learned on Sunday uh -huh. when you were here um talk to us about Clifford Beers what you're located in New Haven you're on Winchester Avenue um for those who are going to watch this show they will be able to see you on the podcast, but when on Spotify, they can't. And, but, you know, you are a very intelligent white woman. You are the CEO of a mental health facility on Winchester Avenue. You know, even though Yale renamed it um, Science Park, it's still Winchester. You know, it is Winchester Avenue. It's a part of New Haven that is a community of color. And you are the CEO there and you provide services for our community. Can you just talk about what you do? Because, you know, prior to meeting you, there was a there was a perception about your agency mm -hmm. that you weren't um, that the programs and services weren't for the community, mm -hmm. that you had to get a doctor's referral in order to be there. Mm -hmm. um, and Science Park was Yale. So, of course, people didn't think people of color worked there. Mm -hmm. So there's this, you know, this perception or misperception that people right. have about your organization. So talk to us about Clifford Beers and what you all really do. Sure. I'd love to. Thank you for asking. Um so Clifford Beers is 107 years old <laughs> and everyone always goes, well, who's Clifford Beers? So Clifford Beers was a guy who lived in New Haven. He went to Yale, but he was an accounting major um, who suffered pretty terrible depression. Mm. Um, so much so that uh, at the turn of the century, he tried to commit suicide and he lived on Trumbull Street and he wrote a book after his experience. Um, and in the book, he said, I think I held on a little too long, so I only broke my legs. He jumped off the, like, the fourth floor of the townhouse. And um, he, was, he, had, he had gotten so depressed that he was in a psychosis. Um, and this was in uh, the turn of the century, like 1906, 1907. Um, well, he was in the hospital, so he was in, he, his legs got better, but they didn't know what to do with him because he was so uh, ill. They put him in Connecticut Valley Hospital, CDH, um, where, uh, you know, where people go, it, it, it was an insane asylum. And okay. he went into the insane asylum and um, was quite uh, just str struck by how poorly people were treated how the insane were locked away from the regular society and there was no treatment for mental health. So this guy, um, you know, he was a little probably bipolar. So he had some mania. He was very enthusiastic. He kept writing everything down. And when he came out of the hospital a couple of years later, still with depression, he wrote a book called The Mind That Found Itself. And it was the first book that ever talked about from someone who lived in an insane asylum. Hmm. Sort of, I was calling an opera, uh, you know, book club book in the in Victorian <laughs> society, and um, you know, people read it. And he actually, after he got out, um, he started the Connecticut Mental Hygiene Society, which then became the National Society, and now is Mental Health America, is the largest mental health advocacy group in the world. Wow! Every law, every policy that has passed through um, for mental health in our state, in our country, and across the world, uh, really starts in this uh, association. And so, um, you know, his vision, Odell, through his distress, right, mm -hmm. he created this book, and then this work after the book, and changed the world. Mm -hmm. So yes, the legacy of this organization. And it was always an organization that other organizations form and start across the state and across the country. And then in the 50s, we became a child guidance clinic. 
Um, and uh, we have served uh, last year well over 6,000 kids and family members in the greater New Haven region. So uh, we do mobile crisis service for 18 towns in the greater New Haven region. Really? We have an affiliate uh, okay. we work with an organization in Norwalk. So uh, in Mid Fairfield, uh, we have an agency that sees a, a, about 1,500 kids and families there. Um, we're embedded in New Haven Public Schools. We um, run programs for kids who are at high risk, um, problem sexual behaviors, a lot of trauma, sex trafficking. Um, we have a very uh, extensive expertise in working with kids who have been sexually abused or lived through domestic violence. Um, and uh, we uh, are constantly, like our founder, Clifford Beers, looking at the systems that are in place and trying really hard to um, meet our families where they're at and address their needs from uh, that place rather than, you know, just being a medical mental health agency where you, um, uh, you know, go and just get medicated. We're very interested in helping people um, access basic needs, resources, food, housing, job, community, connection, um, mental health support. Uh, we have an um, almost half of our staff are people who work in the community and um, help with basic needs. We had uh, staff out today. It's, the schools gave out um, food at three schools today. And we had about eight of our staff were out there. And someone wrote me from Martinez, there must have been 500 families waiting for boxes of food um, in line around the building. And I don't know if they had enough. Oh, my goodness. So, um, you know, we do, we work very much in the community trying to address the needs. During COVID, we opened a warm line for people in the New Haven community. Actually, now it's statewide. We get half the calls are people looking for resources, you know, um, but we have a lot of folks who just, I, I just wanted to provide a space that a live person answered the phone and, you know, talk to us, talk about your anxiety. And so we've had hundreds of people call you know, just to talk. Um, so that's what the warm line is. It's mm -hmm. someone yeah. can call you. They would yeah. call a number. You, you please give us the number. Yeah. And when they call the number, what happens when they call? Uh, if it's during the hours we're open, which is eight till seven. Um, and, and on the weekends, I think it's 10 to, se 10 to six. I have the hours maybe a little wrong. Um, it's called Reach Out CT. And the phone number is one eight four four talk the number four ct okay so it's talk for ct and um we are uh you know so the agency i i worked at the hospital i worked in danbury and when i came to clifford beers i was like amazed that this place we're all pressured in the business of mental health to just mm. in and out, in and out, in and out. And to have a place that actually was looking at not only what does the child need, but what the whole family needs, but then what yes. the community needs has been like an amazing experience for me to work in a place that actually wants to create change. Which and, is unique you know, and good. Yeah. Yes. It's a, it, we have about 200 staff. Uh, a very diverse staff. I know I'm a white woman and um, I'm the CEO. I always like to say though, um, you know, I'm a lesbian. So uh, there's one class of uh, identification, if you will, in terms of, um, uh, you know, having a little bit of a difference, but um, my, I'm raising three children um, of African American descent and we are um, as an agency, uh, committed to a very diverse workforce. And uh, we have increased our um, hiring, uh, you know, by 37, almost 40% in terms of more folks from the community. Um, so we're working really hard to not just be seen as a old, old white institution, but as a, a, as a community partner. And um, we do that. 
We have a big building on 93 Edwards Street, which I don't know if you've ever seen, Odell. I've never seen that building, no. It's a big old pink building. Looks like a kid's place. It's um, That's our main <laughs> office. My uh, business offices and care coordination are on Winchester Avenue. We have an office in West Haven and an office in Guilford. Um, and we're embedded in 12 schools. And we work very closely with New Haven Public Schools. That's awesome. That's awesome. Alice, I don't know if you knew that uh, the title of our podcast tonight was Does Trauma Have Color or Status? You've worked in very diverse uh, communities. You talked about working with the vets. So you worked in diverse communities economically, ethnically, mm -hmm. and situationally. Uh, I know that I'm going to ask you because I really want to hear about the work that you did with Sandy Hook, but do, can you Based on your work and based on anything that you've done in the community, would you say that trauma has a color or status? You know, so so answering that question is difficult in some ways. Um, so people um, in our community in Greater New ha in New Haven um, have very high exposure to trauma and adversity. Uh, we find an average of eight to 11 adverse experiences, not like, you know, it could be in a category, interpersonal violence, it could be community mm -hmm. violence, it could be parental abandonment, parental substance use. You know, we have a long list of, um, they call them adverse childhood experiences. And we're in the schools and we're, we're helping um, across the state actually. And we're finding in, in the urban communities that we, New Haven, Bridgeport, um, and even in other, you know, Stanford and Norwalk that um, our kids are having very high exposure to adversity. Wow, um, not surprised. Is there a color? Um, well, racism and structural racism is an adversity number one. So, um, you know, there's there's that as a um, as as a reality. No matter how affluent or poor you are, um, you know we live in a country where structural racism is affects um, multiple times a day people in terms of your feelings of safety in the community. You know, sending your kids out. I have a daughter, 22, loves to ride around town, and you know I'm worried constantly about her, um, her safety, but status, I'd like to know what you mean by status before I answer that question. Like, what do you mean? Well, when Kathy and I were putting this together and we were looking at um, resources, part of what I did with inter, part of the struggle that I know that we have in urban communities and communities of color are resources. Um, yeah. You know, there isn't a doctor on every corner. Um, our friends, doctors don't come to dinner, you know, and, and, and can help counsel our children, look at our children, and we go golfing and get resources and know a doctor. And these resources of where to find support and help aren't as readily available as you would see if I was in Greenwich or in Sandy Hook. So when we talk about status, part of the struggles and 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 I'll say in our community is resources. Yeah. And you know, a ch a child in New Haven will go to school and then on Friday their friend could be shot dead. Monday they are expected to return to school and act like everything is okay and everything is normal when the entire city has been disrupted and everything is not okay. And this child is, this person has been traumatized right. and it's treated mm -hmm. very differently status wise. If someone lost a friend or a major shooting in cross, then it would happen in another in Greenwich or something. They would, you would hear that, you know, counselors went into the schools to talk to the classroom to, you don't hear that right. in New Haven. So that was some of the concerns that we had about status. Yeah. That's what we mean about status. Yeah. I, I, I think um, you're right on. Um, 
you know, the, um, what we do to our kids who live with so much trauma is we arrest them or they're suspended or, you know, they're disciplined because they're not following direction. And, you know, what we've been trying to do uh, across the state, but in particular in our cities is really educate, you know, how much stress our mm -hmm. children and families are living with. And you Thank expect you. the families, you know, you expect the family to get the kid there on school when moms work two and a half jobs, That's right. you know, no car, he missed the bus, um, you know, how, how to, you know, the, the, the enormity of expectations we have are so high. And I'm not saying expectations shouldn't be high, but what I'm saying is our tolerance for uh, distress or adversity is very low. And so, you know, we want people to do what they're supposed to do. And, yes. you know, mm -hmm. he shouldn't be asleep on the, on the, um, you know, on the desk, you know, and, and how, and, and our schools don't have the uh, woman power or the resources right. to be able to address, you know, in a whole way, what this family and what this child needs, because one of the things we've learned and, and know very strongly that it's not just the kid, you know, a lot of times it's, it's the kid correct. gets identified, but it's really the family that needs, right. yes. you know, a kid comes in and he, you know, you know, she's missed, she's been suspended three times in kindergarten and is going, you know, repeating again. And the reality is, is that, you know, the long list of things that are going on with that family, you know, the kid's absenteeism is like really low <laughs> compared to they're going to be evicted or mom's yes. evicted or, you know, the other brothers and sisters being arrested. So like, there's just so much chaos and um, the resources to address it is um, very low. And the, and the will to address it, I'm not saying is low, but you know, if you were to look at how does structural racism work, right? It mm -hmm. starts with, let's just, you know, ignore those problems. You yes. Know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, bootstraps yes. and get a job or whatever. And, and or go back to work and keep going and, yeah. and hide it. Don't talk about it. Don't talk about it. Don't talk about it. That's right. And keep that, it in your household. And mm -hmm. that was what, when I, when I shared with you the script, when you saw it for the first time, I remember you saying that you were proud that I was transparent and willing to tell the truth. Yeah. That, you know, we're taught at a young age to not talk about it, to, you know, pray more and to just keep going, return to work and keep yourself busy, but it doesn't help. And, and the biology of trauma is so real and we don't, you know, that's one of the first things we do when we're trying to teach teachers or other professionals around um, the impact of trauma is, you know, it impacts your brain. Um, you know, I know Adele, you had a specific impact on your brain. I don't, I, mm -hmm. you know, we can't say one caused the other, but um, one impacted the other, I'm sure, yes. very strongly. Very strongly. Stress, definitely. Yeah. And, and you know, we see it in, in poor health outcomes, right? In mm -hmm. um, lower economic and our black and brown communities. And we're hearing it now with COVID. And, you know, people are asking why. And, you know, they don't understand, you know, what stress causes so much inflammation and inflammation causes um, illness. And, um, you know, the, the biology, you know, I have a friend who teaches this and I, I think it's just such a wonderful way to frame it, right? You're born into a world. It's either a safe world or an unsafe world, right? I mean, mm -hmm. that's just, you're, you didn't ask, you know, this is what you're born into. And in either world, your brain is accommodating those, um, you know, in order to survive. Yes. So in an unsafe world, you become hypervigilant. You're really listening, uh, you know, making sure 
um, you're able to respond immediately. And in a safe world, you're able to kind of um, relax, but you do really bad under a lot of stress, right? It's like you're mm -hmm. not brought up for that. And I think that it's, it's important for us to realize what those environments do to the biology of our kids and our, of us. Yes, yes. And, um, you know, Absolutely. early childhood intervention, start earlier and quicker and help the mom or dad, you know, get good employment, have safe housing, have enough food. I mean, for goodness sake. The privilege I have, my kids have, you know, they, they tell me I have, they have to have brand new sneakers when they start school in September, even in virtual school, they have to have. In know, virtual school. <laughs> the, there the, are, you know, part of, um, as you were talking about it, you know, I was doing some reading being home. It's like, what am I going to do? So you just, I just read uh, as much as I can. And, you know, Dr. Joy DeGruy, who you know of, you know, she talks about the post-traumatic slave syndrome yeah. that's in our DNA and our genetics. And we build into our culture that we pass down in terms of, you know, we, our bodies automatically respond. People of color respond very differently when a police pull up behind us and stop us versus someone, of, you know, who's white. You know, behavior, the actions are very different. Right. When you go into the store, our behaviors are just different. So you're absolutely correct. And it's something that unconsciously we teach. And as I was working on interruptions, I kept wondering, why was I so protective of my children? You know, my son, be safe. You know, go to New York, have a better life. You know, that's that slave syndrome mentality where you're going to go up north and stay with your family so you can have better options. That's right. You know, even though it was south, he, you know, the, the concept was was still there. And I had friends who listened to Kathy and I's previous podcast that said we never paid attention to Jackie. Mm -hmm. We was just focused on you. We never realized what she went through. And when they saw the entire production, they felt bad because people, we focus on the adult and we forget the impact that it has on the community, our friends, our family. Um, Kathy and I go to the same church and I remember in, in, in interruptions, it was the same that says, ask me another question. You know, people were calling with all these silly questions. How are you feeling? You know, God needed another angel. Um, Kathy's daughter is autistic. And she said the most honest, profound thing to me. Miss Odell, I'm so sorry to hear that your son, Jonathan, was murdered. And that's what she said. But she said it to me every time she saw me. So it was like, okay, but... She didn't, and she said, I'm sorry. Never said, how are you feeling? How are you doing? Um, but she said, I'm sorry that this was happening to you. She named it, she claimed it. Um, and, and Kathy, for you, um, we do talk about interruptions and communication. Um, how did you have to talk to your daughter about, about my son being murdered in, in grief? Because it's not anything that we do. Right. It's not in our it's not our comfort level to talk about grief and death. So and you're right. We we always try to soften the blow by it, it by saying exactly what you said. God needed another angel or now they're not sick anymore. But in our household, it's a little bit different because when you have a child with special needs, our conversations sound very different. You have to be very direct when you're having these type of conversations with everyone in the household, not just her. And so when I explained death to her at a very young age, she lost her grandfather and her grandmother, who were icons in her world. They were our support system, and she lost them nine months apart. And so I had to have a very honest conversation about um, death, 
with her to say that this is what happened. They were ill. She knew that they were in the hospital. Um, because my husband worked at night, We would I would often have to take her one way or the other, either to the hospital uh, with me or when my mother was being cared for at home to take her to uh, with me to care for my mother at her home. And so she saw these up front. So she had that very honest view. So she heard me being honest. And so when she was having that conversation with you to say, I'm sorry, to say um, about your son's death. Um, and so that's what she heard in our household. Mm -hmm. I didn't, I couldn't cushion it for her because otherwise it wouldn't be real. I had to make it real for her. And I think not not in a harsh way that you and I would have a conversation, but very real for her. Even when she, uh, we would go into, you know, I don't know if you've ever noticed that um, when someone in a wheelchair or someone that's physically disabled might walk by people, they're not comfortable looking at them. And and she she always was. Mm -hmm. And so that made me recognize that I was the one not comfortable it, and I had to deal with that. And so looking through her eyes and being honest, I had to learn honesty myself. Mm -hmm. And so now rather than turn away from someone, you say hi or you recognize them. And she would like she did with you. She would go she directly did. up to them directly. and just, yeah, directly and just <laughs> to them. always, always. Now, what I did have to talk to her about was limitations, but it's hard for to, for a child with autism to understand, but she understands it's repetition in terms of having direct conversations to say, it's okay that you said you were sorry. And now she understands that, but we're not going to say it every time we see her. So not chastising her, just to sit down so that she would understand it. I thought that was um, a great story. Yeah. So, so Alice in um, in the black community, you know, Black Panther came out, and we took our kids and grandchildren, nieces, mm -hmm. nephews, everybody to see Black Panther <laughs> to just show them that multiple we are, times, multiple <laughs> times, you know. And we would drag kids just so we could go see it again. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And yeah. we we wanted to show, you know, the 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 heritage, the richness, the, the intelligence of our culture that wasn't taught in schools. You know, that you, this is, this is Africa. This is history. This is who we were and kids were, you know, this, and, you know, and we taught this. So the character, um, Boswick dies. Um, and all of a sudden I'm, I'm listening to parents with, you know, Black Lives Matter, the George Floyd, um, Breonna Taylor and others, they're hearing it. We're stuck in the house. So we have no other venue, but to show it on the news, talk about it, shows up on social media. Um, our children, I'm hearing a lot of my friends say that their children are having nightmares. You know, my grandchild says, I'm having a nightmare. I think I'm going to be homeless or someone's going to hurt us. Mm -hmm. And it's not anything that it's not comfortable for, hasn't been comfortable for us to talk about grief and trauma. Yeah. You've worked with Sandy Hook. You've worked with um, youth and kids. How would you advise us? Because we, we, we know grief has no color. Pain is pain. But how would you advise our listeners, us, to talk to our children about the trauma that they're seeing and the grief? Because as you say, it's showing up in schools. That's the school calling now, actually. Um, <laughs> Do you have to take a robo that? Call. No, oh, no, no, no. It's just, um, I, I heard your phone ringing and my phone. Yeah, and I, same I, thing. In public schools, yeah. Yes. Um, so, Kathy, I thought what you said about your daughter was really incredible um, because of her other ability, right? Um, you have to talk to her in real terms and tell her for real what um, is going on so that she can fully understand it as opposed to our metaphors and, uh, you know, uh, ways that we kind of talk around stuff. Right. And so, um, I think, uh, and also her, uh, her, her seeing truth much clearer than we do. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, in terms of, um, like you said, seeing folks in distress or, you know, in a wheelchair or whatever, and her not making a judgment that we might do, um, 
you know, she's treats everyone, you know, the same. So there's a lot of um, very important things we can learn from her mm. and for folks um, who raise children um, with other abilities, you know, mm -hmm. um, but I think that, you know, it's, it's very hard right now to, um, you know, to say, oh, you know, this too will pass. <laughs> I mean, yes. it, it feels, it, it feels like the real has hit us in the face and on the, everywhere. Like, you know, the reality of George Floyd's death, what happened yesterday with Brianna, you know, coming out clear that, that you know, she, Brianna Taylor's um, case was not presented in the way that everybody thought it would be, um, you know, with the loss of, of Jonathan, you know, we, we're getting like, a, it, it is clearly real right now. And so that our kids are feeling it and they're feeling the distress, they're feeling scared. Um, they're worried, you know, about this mysterious COVID, which, you know, either mm. impacts their life or, or yes. not, but they're here, you know, it's impacting their life every day because they can't go to school. So um, the best approach is Kathy's approach, which is to be as real, um, you know, and, and Odell, you have a little granddaughter too. It's sort of like, you know, you tell her what you can and you um, tell her as real as you can in the, you know, in words that she can understand. Um, you know, I was talking to Odell the other day and, and, you know, the thing that we have to not rush to is judgment that this is trauma, like they're going to be, um, damaged for life. Right. The, um, yes. them having strong feelings is a very important and, um, good thing and to support them of that. And when, what you want to watch for as a parent is their, um, does it not go away? Does it not lose, you know, lessen? Does, um, you know, are, are her nightmares getting worse? You know, are they, um, is this something that really preoccupying her during the day? Is she not able to really do the normal activities of, um, you know, life that she, you know, would normally do? Is there interference there? Mm -hmm. um, sleep is a very good indicator, right? Is she able to go to sleep? Um, you know, there are always changes um, in kids, especially when bad things happen, but um, it's important to uh, recognize that that's just a natural process, like all of us. Okay, you know? yes, very, um, that it is. But I think that the thing that um, we don't do well is the, is talking real, <laughs> you know? I mean, you know, you think about the Vietnam veterans, you talk about, um, you know, the work that's been done in terms of, um, you know, 400 years of, of, of a country ignoring what we've mm. done, right? Yes. Um, you know, sexual abuse, that happens to be where I'm an expert. Uh, well, when you write a dissertation, I guess you could say I have a little bit of expertise in that area, but I did my um, research on talking about that and how I listened to girls tell their stories of how they told. And, um, you know, the literature back in the day when I wrote my dissertation was really focused on it being in the individual person that their mm. memory might be, you know, that their memory might be faulty or they mm. were hesitant to tell um, or they didn't have a memory, you know, like it was repressed, like right. all of this intrapsychic individual sort of, um, focus and the literature was all about that. And I had the opportunity of working with folks who had studied storytelling of the Holocaust, uh, Dr. Dory Laub from Yale and how they started to get people in their eighties and nineties to tell the stories of what happened, because again, they lived their whole life, never talking about what happened. Right. Was and, it helpful for them after all these years yeah. to finally tell it? Yeah, I mean, the reality is, Odell, what you achieved in interruptions is what we want everyone to be able to achieve, mm -hmm. which is to live and tell the story so that you're not holding it all by yourself. You know, and, and you did an amazing thing because you told your story, you told Jackie's story, you told your 
um, nephew story. You, you told other people's stories too, um, with their permission, which was amazing. And, um, and, and that is really what you want to get to in trauma mm -hmm. is let's talk about this. My grand, my, um, okay. sister-in-law passed away very, um, suddenly and they lived in, they live in New Jersey, my brother and his two kids. And, you know, it was amazing. The community showed up at their doorstep mm -hmm. food forever. You know, I always say, you know, you bring a lasagna, right. You, you come with, uh, to support, there are no words. I love your thing. Tell, ask me another question. But when, when we have kids who die in our community, um, the, the lasagnas don't come, right? I mean, um, the, the families are often, if they're involved in violence or, or um, you know, drugs or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, those families have to live all by themselves in that shame, in that story, without having this community support and that's that's the hard part and now we don't want to end this on okay. a heavy note and love you appreciate this conversation what do you do to um not carry this to sleep so that you're not having nightmares and can go to sleep what do you do for you alice that helps you to just let it go well, I have a lot of nightmares. I think we all are. They, they say yeah. COVID has brought us all into this dream state. So I, I can't get the, rid of those too much. But um, mm -hmm. I um, I try to keep my workday, you know, to a beginning and an end, right? Um, right? Because even though I'm working from home, if you can't tell, I'm <laughs> stuck in this little closet, you know. All of us, right? But, um, you know, to and, and um, I often actually go into the kitchen to wash the dish. I love washing the dishes with the hot water as a mm. thing. And I listen to podcasts, which I love. Um, so go podcast. And um, I read a lot. Um, I like to, um, I paint. I haven't painted actually in a long time. Really? Yeah, I, okay. I like to paint furniture. Um, but I, um, I try to make sure that I have some boundaries, you know, um, around work and, um, and home. And if you can hear, I don't know if you can hear my son is snoring behind me. <laughs> no. He fell asleep. He always, he gets hungry and then he falls asleep and he sounds asleep. And I had to wake him up. I ordered dinner tonight. So. No, it's, um, it's, it's important for us to take care of ourselves. Um, yeah. There was just days where I would just go to Kathy's house and just, you know, cry. And now I just go and I sit. I remember going to her house. She had a holiday party and I showed up and I was like, great, I can't drive home. So she was like, what do you want to drink? I said, can I have some wine? She was like, no, <laughs> you know, you can have some juice, you know, but the support there was, yeah. I can go to her house. I can sit on her deck. I can get away from the environment. And um, it's something that we all need to do is to, you know, safely find some place that we can just go and sit. And you and I sat Sunday and it was like, oh, this yeah. is nice, yeah. you know, just yeah. to be, be away from our environment. Is there, in our last couple of minutes, is there anything else you want our listeners to know about Clifford Beers, how to access you? Um, you know, who, why would they want to call the warm line? And, you know, what would you want to tell people in the last couple of minutes about Clifford Beers? And in case you're sitting there thinking, I don't know where to go. So first of all, um, Clifford Beers is open. Um, we have open access. Uh, we have emergency mobile services. So if you have an emergency, you could call 211 and we would come out within 30 minutes, even 20 minutes um, to someone's home uh, to help with the child, uh, you know, anything going on. Um, we take intakes um, for parents or for kids. Um, and, uh, we're very open and they could call our main number, which is on the website, uh, cliffordbeers.org. 
Um, I guess the last word that I'd like to say is it's is exhibited in your relationship with Kathy, that you don't have to be alone with the struggle, mm-hmm. that it is in friendship and in community that we do our healing. And that's what we look for in Clifford Bears. That's what we try to promote and help build a community so that you don't feel alone. That's great. Thank you. Thank you. What, Alice, what Odell and I do is try to expose that a life interruption can, in fact, cause trauma that can temporarily or permanently alter a person's ability to function. We know that in too many communities, while resources may be available, we fail to collaborate to ensure equitable distribution of services. Programs and agencies such as yours are underutilized because sometimes of fear or lack of trust um, or failure to share information about services available um, and access to services. So I just want to thank you um, for coming and sharing with us today because we hope by your words uh, uh, with us today that someone will be encouraged not to be alone, as you said, and reach out for support. And then for our listeners, we're going to say, um, please don't forget to click our like button on our podcast and subscribe to our site. If you're listening through podcasts, download and share because someone you know may need to hear this. Yes. Yes. So thank you again, Alice, um, for being on the team and being here with us. And Kathy, another interesting podcast i'm starting to love it and i never (laughs) thought i'd enjoy podcasts (laughs) you're You're having a lot of fun i think (laughs) yeah i am okay thank you thank you very much for inviting me to speak at clip of yours thank you Mm -hmm.